Hi class, this is Dr. Trentini, your instructor for your college communication course. This is Fundamentals of Human Communication 1090. This audio recording is an option for students who prefer to listen to our readings or like to read and listen along. Communication, History and Forms, Chapter 1.1, Learning Objectives. 1. Define Communication. 2. Discuss the history of communication from ancient to modern times. 3. List the five forms of communication. 4. Distinguish among the five forms of communication. And 5. Review the various career options for students who study communication. Before we dive into the history of communication, it is important that we have shared understanding of what we mean by the word communication. For our purposes in this book, we will define communication as the process of generating meaning by sending and receiving verbal and nonverbal symbols and signs that are influenced by multiple contexts. This definition builds on other definitions of communication that have been rephrased and refined over many years. In fact, since the systematic study of communication began in colleges and universities a little over 100 years ago, there have been more than 126 pub published definitions of communication. Danson Larson, 1976. In order to get a context for how communication has been conceptualized and studied, let's look at a history of the field. From Aristotle to Obama, a brief history of communication. While there are rich areas of study in animal communication and interspecies communication, our focus in this book is on human communication. Even though all animals communicate, as human beings, we have a special capacity to use symbols to communicate about things outside our immediate temporal and spatial reality, Dance and Larson. For example, we have the capacity to use abstract sim symbols, like the word education, to, to discuss a concept that encapsulates many aspects of teaching and learning. We can also reflect on the past and imagine our future. The ability to think outside our immediate reality is what allows us to create elaborate belief systems, art, philosophy, and academic theories. It's true that you can teach a gorilla to sign words like food and baby, but its ability to use symbols doesn't extend to the same level of abstraction as ours. However, humans haven't always had the sophisticated communication systems that we do today. Some scholars speculate that humans' first words were onomatopoetic. You may remember from your English classes that onomatopoeia refers to words that sound like that to which they refer. Words like boing, drip, gurgle, swoosh, and whack. Just think about how a prehistoric human could have communicated a lot using these words and hand gestures. He or she could use gurgles to alert others to the presence of water or swish and whack to recount what happened on a hunt. In any case, the primitive ability to communicate provided an evolutionary advantage. Those humans who could talk, were able to cooperate, share information, make better tools, impress mates, or warn others of danger, which led them to have more offspring uh, who were also more predisposed to communicate, Poe 2011. This eventually led to the development of a talking culture during the 
talking era. During this 150,000 year period of human existence, ranging from 180,000 BCE to 3500 BCE, talking was the only medium of communication, aside from gestures and human hand, and the human hand, Po, 2011. The beginning of the manuscript era, around 3500 BCE, marked the turn of the oral to written culture. This evolution in communication corresponded with the shift to a more settled agrarian way of life, Po 2011. As hunter-gatherers settled into small villages and began to plan ahead for how to plant, store, protect, or trade, or sell their food, they needed an accounting system to keep track of their materials and record transactions. While such transactions were initially tracked with actual objects that symbolized an amount, for example, five pebbles represented five measures of grain, symbols likely carved into clay, later served as the primary method of record keeping. In this case, five dots might equal five measures of grain. During this period, Villages also developed class systems as much more successful farmers turned businessmen prospered and took leadership positions. The re religion also became more complex and a new class of spiritual leaders emerged. Soon, armies were needed to protect the stockpiled resources from others who might want to steal it. The emergence of elite classes and the rise of armies required records and bookkeeping, which furthered the spread of written symbols. As clergy, the ruling elite, and philosophers began to take up writing, the systems became more complex. The turn to writing didn't threaten the influential place of oral communication, however. During the near 5,000 period of the manuscript era, era, literacy, or the ability to read and write, didn't spread far beyond the most privileged in society. In fact, it wasn't until the 1800s that widespread literacy existed in the world. The end of the manuscript era marked a shift toward rapid increase in communication technologies. The print era extended from 1450 to 1850 and was marked by the invention of the printing press and the ability to mass produce written text. The 400-year period gave way to the audiovisual era, which lasted only 140 years, from 1850 to 1990. And it was marked by the invention of radio, telegraph, telephone, and television. Our current period, the internet era, has lasted from 1990 until the present. This period has featured the most rapid dispersion of a new method of communication. As the spread of the internet and the expansion of digital and personal media signaled the beginning of the digital age. The evolution of communication media from speaking to digital technology has also influenced the field of communication studies. To better understand how this field of study developed, we must return to the manuscript era, which saw the production of the earliest writings about communication. In fact, the oldest essay and book ever found were written about communication, McCroskey, 1984. Although this essay and book predated Aristotle, um, he is a logical person to start with when tracing the development of communication scholarship. His writings on communication, although not the oldest, are the most complete and systematic. Ancient Greek philosophers and scholars such as Aristotle theorized 
about the art of rhetoric, which refers to speaking well and persuasively. Today we hear the word rhetoric used in negative ways. A politician, for example, may write off uh, his or her opponent's statements as just rhetoric. This leads us to believe that rhetoric refers to uh, misleading, false, or unethical communication, which is not at all in keeping with the usage of the word by ancient or contemporary communication experts. While rhetoric does refer primarily to persuasive communication messages, much of the writing and teaching about rhetoric conveys the importance of being an ethical rector or communicator. For when a communicator, such as a politician, speaks in misleading, vague, or dishonest ways, he or she isn't using rhetoric. He is just being an unethical speaker. The study of rhetoric focused on public communication, primarily uh, auditory, used in discussions or debates regarding laws and policies, speeches delivered in courts, and speeches intended to praise or blame another person. The connections among rhetoric, policymaking, and legal proceedings show that communication and citizenship have been connected since the study of communication began. Throughout this book, we will continue to make connections between communication ethics and civil engagement. Okay, next page. Ancient Greek rhetoricians like Aristotle were followed by the Roman orators like Cicero. Cicero contributed to the field of rhetoric by expanding theories regarding the five canons of rhetoric, which included invention, arrangement, style, delivery, and memory. Invention refers to the use of evidence and arguments to think about things in new ways and is the most studied of the five canons. Arrangement refers to the organization of speech. Style refers to the use of language. And delivery refers to the vocal and physical characteristics of a speaker. Memory is the least studied of all the five canons and refers to the techniques employed by speakers of that era to retain and then repeat large amounts of information. The Age of Enlightenment in the 1700s marked a societal turn towards scientific discovery and the acquisition of knowledge, which led to an explosion of philosophical and scientific writings on many aspects of human existence. This focus on academic development continued into the 1900s and the establishment of a distinct communication studies departments. Communication studies as a distinct academic discipline with departments at universities and colleges has only existed for a little over 100 years. Keith, 2008. Although rhetoric has long been a key part of higher education, and colleges and universities have long recognized the importance of speaking, communication departments did not exist. In the early 1900s, professors with training and expertise in communication were often housed in rhetoric or English departments and were sometimes called professors of speech. During this time, tension began to build between professors of English who studied rhetoric as the written word and professors of speech who studied rhetoric as in the spoken word. In 1940, a group of 10 speech teachers who were members of the National Council of Teachers of English broke off from the organization and started the National Association of Academic Teachers of Public Speaking, which eventually evolved into today's National Communication Association. 
There was also a distinction of focus and interest among professors of speech. While some focused on the quality of ideas, arguments, and organization, others focused on coaching and the, uh, coaching the performance and delivery aspect of public speaking. Instruction in the latter stressed the importance of oratory or elocation, and this interest in speaking and writing aloud is sustained today in theater and performance studies, and also in oral interpretation classes, which are still taught in many communication departments. The formalization of speech departments led to an expanded view of the role of communication. Even though Aristotle and other ancient rhetoricians and philosophers had theorized the connection between rhetoric and citizenship, the role of the communicator became the focus instead of solely focusing on the message. James A. Winans, one of the most one of the first modern speech teachers and advocate for teaching communication in higher education, said that there were two motives for learning to speak, increasing one's chance to succeed and increasing one's power to serve. Keith, 2008. Later, as social psychology began to expand in academic institutions, speech communication scholars sought places for connection to further expand definitions of communication to include social and psychological contexts. Today, you can find elements of all these various aspects of communication being studied in communication departments. If we were to use President Obama as a case study, we could see the breadth of the communication field. With one department, you may have fairly uh, traditional rhetoricians who study the speeches of President Obama in comparison with other presidential rhetoric. Others may study debates between presidential candidates, dissecting the uh, rhetorical strategies, for example, by Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. Expanding from messages to channels of communication, scholars may study how different media outlets cover presidential politics. At an interpersonal level, scholars may study what sorts of conflicts emerge within families that have liberal and conservative individuals. At a cultural level, communication scholars could study how the election of an African-American president creates a narrative of post-racial politics. Our tour from Aristotle to Obama, uh, mind you, this is outdated, was quick but hopefully instructive. Now let's turn to the discussion of the five major forms of communication. Forms of communication. Forms of communication vary in terms of participants, channels used, and contexts. The five main forms of communication, all of which will be explored in much more detail in this book, are interpersonal, intrapersonal, interpersonal, group, public, and mass communication. Let me try that again. Intrapersonal, interpersonal, group, public, and mass communication. This book is designed to introduce you to all these forms of communication. If you find one of these forms particularly interesting, you may be able to take additional courses that focus specifically on it. You may be even, you, you may be even able to devise a course of study around one of these forms as a communication major. In the following, we will discuss similarities and differences among each form of communication, including its definition, level of intentionality, goals, and contexts. Intrapersonal communication. Intrapersonal communication is communication with oneself using internalized vocalization or reflective thinking. You're talking to yourself. 
Like other forms of communication, interpersonal communication is triggered by some internal ex or external stimulus. We may, for example, communicate with ourselves about what we want to eat due, the, due to the internal stimulus of hunger. Or we may react inter, intra-personally to an event we witness. Unlike other forms of communication, intrapersonal communication takes place only inside our heads. The other forms of communication must be perceived by someone else to count as communication. So what's the point of interpersonal, intrapersonal communication if no one else sees it? Intrapersonal communication serves as several social functions. Internalized vocalization or talking to one ourselves can help us achieve or maintain social adjustment. Danson Larson, 1972. For example, a shy a person may use self-talk to calm himself down in a stressful situation, or a shy person may remind herself to smile during a social event. Intrapersonal communication also helps build and maintain our self-concept. We form an understanding of who we are based on how other people uh, communicate with us and how we, how we process that communication intrapersonally. The shy person in the earlier example probably internalized shyness as part of her self-concept because other people associated her communication behaviors with a shyness and may have even labeled her shy before she had a firm grasp on what that meant. We will discuss self-concept much more in Chapter 2, Communication and Perception, which focuses on perception. We also use intrapersonal communication or self-talk to let off steam, process emotions, think through something, or rehearse what we plan to say or do in the future. As with other forms of communication, competent intrapersonal communication helps facilitate social interaction and can enhance our well-being. Conversely, the breakdown in the ability of a person to intrapersonally communicate is associated with mental illness, Danson Larson, 1972. Sometimes we intrapersonally communicate for the fun of it. I'm sure we've all had the experience of laughing out loud because we thought of something funny. We also communicate intrapersonally to pass time. I bet there's a lot of intrapersonal communication going on in waiting rooms all over the world right now. In both of these cases, interpersonal communication is usually unplanned and doesn't include a clearly defined goal, Danson Larson, 1972. We can, however, engage in more intentional interpersonal communication. In fact, deliberate self-reflection can help us become more competent communicators as we become more mindful of our own behaviors. For example, your internal voice may praise or scold you based on a thought or action. On the forms of communication, interpersonal communication has received the least amount of formal study. It is, it is rare to find courses devoted to the topic, and it is generally separated from the remaining four types of communication. The main distinction is that interpersonal communication is not created with the intention that another person will perceive it. In all other levels, the fact that the communicator anticipates consumption of their message is very important. Interpersonal communication. Interpersonal communication is communication between people whose lives mutually influence one another. 
Interpersonal communication builds, maintains, and ends our relationships as we spend more time engaged in interpersonal communication than other forms of communication. Interpersonal communication occurs in various contexts and is addressed in subfields of study within communication studies such as intercultural communication, organizational communication, health communication, and computer-mediated communication. After all, interpersonal communication exists in all those contexts. Interpersonal communication can be planned or unplanned, but since it is interactive, it is usually more structured and influenced by social expectations than intrapersonal communication. Interpersonal communication is also more goal-oriented than intrapersonal communication and fulfills instrumental and relational needs. In terms of instrumental needs, the goal may be as minor as greeting someone to fulfill a morning ritual or as major as conveying your desire to be in a committed relationship with someone. Interpersonal communication meets relational needs by communicating the uniqueness of a specific relationship. Since this form of communication deals so directly with our personal relationships and is the most common form of communication, Instances of miscommunication and communication conflict most frequently occurs here. Danson Larson, 1972. Couples, bosses, and employees and family members all have to engage in complex interpersonal communication, and it doesn't always go well. In order to be a competent interpersonal communicator, you need conflict management skills and listening skills, among others, to maintain positive relationships. Group communication. Group communication is communication among three or more interacting people interacting to achieve a shared goal. You have likely worked in groups in high school and college, and if you're like most students, you didn't enjoy it. Even though it can be frustrating, group work in an academic setting provides useful experience and preparation for group work in a professional setting. Organizations have been moving towards more team-based work models and whether we like it or not, groups are an integral part of people's lives. Therefore, the study of group communi communication is valuable in many contexts. Group communication is more intentional and formal than interpersonal communication. Unlike interpersonal relationships, which are voluntary, individuals in a group are often assigned to their positions within a group. Additionally, group communication is often task-focused, meaning that the members of the group working together for an explicit purpose or goal that affects each member of the group. Goal-oriented communication in interpersonal interactions usually relates to one person. For example, I may ask my friend to help me move this weekend. Goal-oriented communication at the group level usually focuses on a task assigned to the whole group. For example, a group of people may be tasked to figure out a plan for moving a business from one office to another. You know from the previous experience working with groups that having more communication usually leads to more complicated interactions. Some of the challenges of group communication relate to task-oriented interactions, such as deciding who will complete each part of a larger project. But many challenges stem from interpersonal conflict or misunderstandings among group members. Since group members also communicate with and relate to each other interpersonally and may have pre-existing relationships or develop them during the course of a group interaction, elements of interpersonal communication occur within group communication too. 
Chapter 13, Small Group Communication, and Chapter 14, Leadership Roles and Problem Solving in Groups um, of this book, which deal with group communication, will help you learn how to be a more effective group communicator by learning about group theories and processes as well as various roles that communicate to and detract from the functioning of a group. Okay, and now the big one, public communication. Public communication is a center-focused form of communication in which one person is typically responsible for conveying information to an audience. Public speaking is something that many people fear or at least don't enjoy. But like group communication, public speaking is an important part of our academic, professional, and civic lives. When comparing to interpersonal and group communication, public communication is the most consistently intentional, formal, and goal-oriented form of communication we have discussed so far. Public communication, at least in Western societies, is also more sender-focused than interpersonal or group communication. It is precisely this formality and focus on the sender that makes many new and experienced public speakers anxious at the thought of facing an audience. One way to begin to manage this anxiety toward public speaking is to begin to see connections between public speaking and other forms of communication with which we are more familiar or uncomfortable. Despite being formal, public speaking is very similar to the conversations that we have in our daily interactions. For example, although public speakers don't necessarily develop individual relationships with audience members, they still have the benefit of being face-to-face with them so they can receive verbal and nonverbal feedback. Later in this chapter, you will learn some strategies for managing speaking anxiety since presentations are undoubtedly a requirement in this course for which you're reading this book or listening to. Then in chapter 9, preparing a speech, chapter 10, delivering a speech, and chapter 11, informative and persuasive speaking, and chapter 12, public speaking in various contexts, you will learn how to choose an appropriate topic, research your organization, um, organizing your speech, effectively deliver your speech, and evaluate your speeches in order to improve. Now, the next one is mass communication. Public communication becomes mass communication when it's transmitted to many people through print or electronic media. Print media, such as newspapers, magazines, and magazines, continue to be an important channel for mass communication, although they have suffered much in the past decade due to, in part, of its rise of electronic media. Television, websites, blogs, and social media are mass communication channels that you probably engage with regularly. Okay, after the picture, mass communication differs from other forms of communication in terms of the personal connection between participants. Even though creating the illusion of a personal connection is often a goal of those who create mass communication messages, the relational aspect of interpersonal and group communication isn't inherent within this form of communication. Unlike interpersonal group and public communication, there is no immediate verbal and nonverbal Uh, feedback loop in in mass communication. Of course, you could write a letter to the editor of a newspaper or send an email to a television or radio show or radio broadcaster. Um, 
in a response to a story, but the immediate feedback available in a face-to-face interaction isn't present. With the new media technologies like Twitter, blogs, Facebook, feedback is becoming more immediate. Individuals can now tweet directly at somebody or use hashtags to direct feedback to mass communication sources. Most radio and television hosts have news organizations specifically invite feedback from viewers, listeners via social media, and may even share the feedback on the air. The technology to to mass produce and distribute communication messages brings with it the power for one voice or a series of voices to reach and affect many people. This power makes mass communication different from other forms of communication. While there is potential for unethical communication at all other levels, the potential consequences of unethical mass communication are important to consider. Communication scholars who focus on mass communication and media often take a critical approach in order to examine how media shapes our culture and who is included and excluded in various mediated messages. We'll discuss um, more media um, in the Chapter 15, Media, Communication, uh, Technology and Communication, and then Chapter 16, New Media and Communication. Um, This ends our chapter. Please refer to the key takeaways and objectives of this chapter um, for, I'm sorry, chapter 1.1. Next will be chapter 1.2. So this is a good stopping point if you need to take a break.